Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5. Some of you are going to let your Bible fall gently open to Galatians 5. We all said it earlier, but I say, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. That's walk in dependence on the power supplied by the gift that God's given us, the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not, literally in Greek, you will, it will be impossible for you to. It will be absolutely possible for you to fulfill the lust of the flesh. The war that rages in us between our sinful nature and the indwelling Holy Spirit is dramatized in Galatians chapter 5. And we're celebrating today in the riches of grace, the things that we have as believers in Christ because of our so great salvation. We're seeking not to neglect that salvation, but to think about it, to reflect on it. We're talking about your Christian spiritual life. And so this message is going to be radical, countercultural, absurd to the world under deception from God's enemy, and it will be um, salt and light to us because we will be reminded of our obligations. The study of the Christian spiritual life is the study of Christian responsibility, Christian duty, Christian capability. And it's such a helpful thing. This way of life, this spiritual life, has some unexpected ethics, like loving your, your one another as Christ has loved you. It's surprising sometimes how God calls us to think and therefore to live. And so it's counterintuitive. I don't want to challenge you with some of that today. For example, joy is commanded. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice in Philippians 4. That's a command that's served up to your will, to your volition. You can choose either to rejoice or not. It doesn't say if you happen to be in a good mood and everything's kind of going well with your, you know, with your blood sugar or whatever, you can rejoice. It says rejoice in the Lord always. It's an obligation that God places on us. And um, that's like the best command I've ever heard. Rejoice. <laughs> Great. I'm supposed to do that. You know, the world knows this. One of my favorite um, um, uh, non-believing uh, commentators out there is Dennis Prager. And uh, he's a rabbi, I think. Or at least he, he performs weddings. But, uh, but he believes in uh, the Old Testament scriptures as he understands them, but he doesn't receive Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. But he has this great thing he always talks about, about uh, the obligation of happiness. That being happy as a happy person is an obligation that we all have because the alternative is that you're bringing everyone down. Oh, I'm just miserable. Well, great. It's awesome to be around you. Thanks for coming to the party. You know? <laughs> I'm sorry you're having trouble. We kind of all are, but we, we live, we're here, we exist. And so even unbelief knows that there's a wisdom, there's a common sense to, um, to, to putting on a happy face. And um, he has a lot to say about that. I think Prager is pretty smart about this. But joy is commanded. And it's commanded at the same time that fear and worry are prohibited with accepting the fear of the Lord, of course. We are to be constantly aware of our wealth and all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. At the same time, we're running the race that's set before us. And the word race in Hebrew or in Greek in Hebrews chapter 12 is agona, where we get the word agony because it hurts to run at your optimum uh, speed, a burnout sort of 400 uh, meter dash or a, the, the, the quarter mile. We know that God is working all things together for good for us as believers in Christ, yet we must suffer hardship, and by many tribulations, Paul says, enter the kingdom of God. You're not suffering to get into the kingdom. You're suffering for its sake as one who belongs to it. We're everywhere reminded that the world has hated our Lord Jesus Christ, and so that it will hate us, and yet we're to adopt God's attitude toward these individuals, loving our enemies and blessing those who persecute us. It's radical. It's unheard of. It's not how you would think because we have sinful natures and we uh, think along the lines of self-preservation and self-advancement. That's one of the things your sinful tendencies do is it turns you in on yourself and it's all about you. 
The problem isn't that there's an upswing in narcissism. It's that we've got a new label for sin and people are selfish. And prosperity gives you opportunity to be more and more selfish and we're in a rich phase of history. Don't worry, that's going away. We must enter God's Sabbath rest by mixing His promises with faith, yet we must not be weary in well-doing. We're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and God prepared works in advance that we walk in. And so we're resting in God, and we're trusting in Him, and it's by His grace through faith that we have eternal life, and yet this life is a life of, of work. Not to be saved, but because we are. The Christian spiritual life is a beautiful thing, and it's always volitional. It's always something we must choose. And our salvation puts all of this in perspective, the fact that we have the life because we have the Son, that the Son of God came to the earth and the flesh of man died for our sins and rose from the dead, that we are now, because of the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, united to Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. This so great salvation, which we must not neglect, says the writer of Hebrews, This is the rational basis for our spiritual way of life, God's initiative of antecedent grace that he has lavished on us in in Christ. This explains how you rejoice and advance under pressure. Without the perspective that we have on our so great salvation, none of this makes sense. And so we would obviously be presenting ourselves, our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice to God in Romans 12, which is our logical, logikos, it says, I didn't say spiritual, it says logical service of worship. It's reasonable that you would live your life for Christ because he's bought you with his blood. And so salvation is the basis and understanding is the basis for the richness of the Christian life that we're living. And it's always covered with gratitude. Our life is Thanksgiving, not in the, uh, toward the end of November, but every day of our lives because we have Christ and he's raised. We're victors in him, and so we're not victims. There are several categories we could talk about in breaking down our salvation in the various ways the New Testament talks about it, and we have been. We're toward, toward the end of this study, which is a fun thing to do, to ask the New Testament, what does it say happened when I trusted in Christ? What are all the things that God has already done for me? It's a question that a lot of people don't ask. We just read through. We're just reading through. And Paul will just make a list of things. We're like, oh, that's nice stuff. And we just kind of read through. But it's good to catalog, catalog these and collect them. For example, when Paul, uh, the apostle, describes the blood of Jesus, there are several things included in the effects of the blood of Christ. And they're all part of our salvation. Through the blood of Christ, we have redemption. God is satisfied with us. That's propitiation. We have reconciliation with God. We who were once far off are brought near, and we are uh, forgiven of our sins. The atonement is all described by, under the category, the blood of Christ in the New Testament. Our union with Christ, we're baptized into union with Christ by means of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That's what the spirit baptism does. It doesn't put you into a trance or an emotional ecstasy. It unites you to Jesus. That's what it means. You're identified with Christ. And in that, we are dead to sin. When Christ, we are free from the law. In Christ, we're made righteous. We're sanctified. We're perfected forever. We're glorified. We are complete. And that's called positional truth. And it's true because what is true of Jesus is now true of me true of you and that's your salvation and so do you know that that that's your identification for me to live as christ to die as gain not i who am living but christ is living in me this is the way your position in christ is expressed in your experience you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling and then there's the category of the new birth which has many things the New Testament says are true about you. For example, in the regeneration, the new birth, we're justified, we're born again, we're declared sons of God, we're a new creation in Christ, we're adopted into the beloved, we're possessors of God's eternal life, and we're given a new spirit. And we've talked about all of these things. And they're all different ways of saying, I'm saved. All of these are different facets of the diamond of our salvation. And it's magnificent to think about this. Just take one of these, the adoption, that I've been declared an heir of God. Not that I'm not naturally born into the family. No, you're born spiritually into the family. But that I've been, Roman style, as a one born in the household, declared an heir of the Father. 
By giving us God the Holy Spirit, there are the irrevocable ministries of the Spirit that are said to be ours forever, like the baptism of the Spirit we've mentioned, that, we, that through the Spirit's union or, or identification, we're in union with Christ. We are permanently indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. He has gifted us with a spiritual gift. He's provided the earnest or first installment of our inheritance in Christ. This new life, as we recently studied, has given us new political identity. Pardon the expression political, and I don't mean temporal. I mean you belong to a new state. You belong to a new entity that is coming. We are delivered from the power of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son in Colossians 1. And this makes us citizens of heaven in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is all true whether you know it or not. And that's why we're talking about it because it's true of you. The New Testament says it about you. Do you rejoice in your heavenly citizenship? Oh, you need to. You need to. If your identity is American citizenship and you know what is done in your name with your tax money by the people that you are electing, that's a horror. That is a horror when you start detailing what they're doing with the tax hall. And it, it, it'll turn your stomach and you say, that's, well, wait a second. You are, in a secondary sense, a citizen of the state you belong to, but in a more important sense, you're a citizen of heaven. You've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved son. That's your identity. And that's part of your salvation. And you got to take that out and think about it. You don't make that true. That is true. You and I are just in ignorance until we learn it from God's revelation that this is true. And now, now I have a basis to think about myself, and it really helps in the time in which we live. Now, that political identity, my new citizenship in heaven, has always been true throughout the entirety of the American experiment. And the less we've understood it, the worse it's gotten in that secondary state of citizenship, I contend. The more we deviate from the fear of God in individual hearts, the worse the civilization becomes. And, and now we're post-Christian. You have a new family too. Did you know that? It's not political in this description of the household. Yeah, the kingdom and the household overlap, but, but there is the household of the faith. There's the household of God that you now belong to because you're in Christ. This new family association, we're the household of the faith in Galatians 6.10 and Ephesians 2.19 and 1 Timothy 3.15, which is the local church, the pillar and ground of the truth. In 1 Peter 4.17, we're part of this household. How does that apply to my life? Well, one of the really important ways it applies is uh, the, the pandemic, the horror of our time in which I, I saw a stat yesterday. Should have brought you some stats. Fatherlessness in this culture is something like seven times the world average in this country. We have the worst situation of fatherlessness in this country, worse than any other country in the entire world. And we talk about how we're rich here. This, you know, the dollars, the trade medium, we have all this wealth and the powerful military and all that we have. Let's talk about real poverty. That God's design where your father and, father and mother raising that kid, which is, which is <laughs> such a predictor for so many things. And the, the fatherless thing where she grows, the kid grows up without his dad, that's a predictor for so many horrible things and crime and all things. We're horribly impoverished. We're like the Laodiceans. We think we're wealthy, but we're not. Dollars don't matter compared to life and the life that these children are born into. And it, it, you know, just so many problems. When you think about the brokenness of the households, boy, is that good news. I, I have a new household. And the old, um, well, one of the problems with crime you might have heard or read about. Here in the quiet corner, we don't have to deal with it so much. But it's touched some of our lives. Is the concept of the gang. The gang is young people with somebody that's a little bit older than the, the privates that they recruit, the, the, the new soldiers, the young guys that get pulled into this thing. How do gangs, bent on crime and destruction and all the things, how do they get going? They prey on people that don't have solid household. 
They prey on people who need that connection. They need that belonging. They, 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 they're just casting about for something, and they find it. They find acceptance after an initiation ritual. They find belonging. They find, hey, we have no place for that. We are in Christ. We're in the household of faith. We have a household. We have a family. That's God's design. The local church is designed by God to be an expression of that universal family, that royal family of God. You know, you have a vocation. Because of your position in Christ, because of your salvation, um, you are called to run this race, and that that carries with it the responsibility to represent Jesus to a world that desperately needs him. However it is that God arranges in your life as you grow in his word to do it, you're supposed to be part of this project of making disciples of the nations. That's an irrevocable, irrevocable calling. That's, that's on us whether we acknowledge it or not. And I, I hear, you know, I read a lot about evangelism and disciple making. And one of the things people st- struggle with in our culture is pastors making you feel guilty about do you share Christ, and putting this weight of this burden on you that you're supposed to be out there hustling and telling you you have an obligation that you're supposed to grow up into and that's your life's mission, if that makes you feel guilty, that's the work of the revelation of God. That's the summary of the New Testament on what we're doing. If you feel guilty about that, that's your problem. Uh, It's not my place to put uh, a burden on you. The scriptures don't, but the truth is that if we're not on mission, we need to repent and figure out how we can be part of God's work. Because we're lagging, we're wasting the resources God gave us. Why again did he give you the Holy Spirit? Why did the church receive the Spirit of God? In Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1, it's so that we could be about the work of representing Jesus to the world. And the alternative for the world, and hear, hear me carefully please, the alternative for the world of us doing our mission is that they are headed to the lake of fire. And I say it has to be this way because God has designed it that people who have Christ tell others about Christ. I've heard of a few occasions where people have read the back of a Gideon's Bible and become believers from that. But that's an outlier. That's an exception. The way it's worked for 2,000 years is that people with Christ tell other people about Christ. And that's the model. It was never that you would hand someone just a, a Bible and say, go to town. It's never been that way. The Bible, the New Testament, is written to believers. Believers are the recipients of this. They're the audience of this, and it equips us to represent him. But it's word of mouth. And think about how you came to Christ. God used somebody testifying in your life. Even that Gideon Bible, those are people that have understood and summarized some of the scriptures in the back to give you a a roadmap. It's still God-used people that are witnessing to you in that medium. That's the mission. And the alternative, by God's design, the alternative to us as the body of Christ being about this mission is that people don't hear of Christ. That's, that's the load he's, he's laid on our shoulders. And when you say, well, that's, that's too much pressure. It's not. It's an easy burden. It's an easy yoke. It's a light burden. You can carry it because you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He's omnipotent. You can do anything that he wants you to do. And that's what Jesus taught the disciples. And so, This is a vocation we've all been given because of our salvation. For our few moments today, I want to talk about capability and responsibility in the power of the Spirit. And it's Galatians 5.22 gives you the portrait of our Savior that is supposed to be our portrait more and more. We're supposed to grow into this list of qualities that we teach the kids, they memorize, and you might have worked through. Maybe we'll expand your understanding of this. Maybe we'll just remind you of some things you've learned before. But this is the portrait of the character of our Savior, and it's the fruit that God, the Spirit, wants to bear in us so that we're more and more like Him. And so let's look at that. It says in my uh, Greek Bible that, but then that translates to this, but the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the Spirit. One thing I'll point out to you is that the word fruit, karpos, that word right there is singular. It isn't the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit. As in one tree, it's an olive tree or a palm tree or a, a plum tree. It's growing the fruit that the tree produces. And the singular fruit is the character of our Savior. It's being more and more like him. 
And it's a work of God in us, as it's portrayed here, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I've capitalized Spirit, pneumatos, and this is an interpretation from Galatians 5 that in context, he's saying this is the war between the Holy Spirit who lives in you and your flesh. It's still uh, active, but a vanquished enemy. You have this tendency of urges toward the flesh, but you've got the presence of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity working in you is agape, kara, irene, and makrothumia. That's love, joy, peace, and patience or long-suffering, makrothumia. Makro, big, large, thumos, thumia, anger, passion, big passion. Doesn't mean you have a big passion. It means you have a long fuse before you pop. Long-suffering. That's the idea. My anger eventually will show up, but it's got a long suffering. I can take a long fuse before that. And that's, that's, that's the, the image of this word for patience. Love, agape, joy, kara, peace, irene, and long-suffering, makrothumia. This is what the Holy Spirit produces in you. These are the character qualities. So much of Christian preaching is what we need to be doing because we're out of the Bible and God tells us what to do. But the, the context in which all that doing is done is who you are. It's who you are to be. And this is the picture. I'm supposed to love in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to rejoice in the Spirit. I'm supposed to, re, uh, to have the peace that God alone can bring. I'm supposed to have patience that is a supernatural work of God in me. People that know you, people that love you, people that are close to you, as you grow in the Word, may come to see more and more that you don't respond to things quite the same way that you used to. There's, there's development. Maybe you had an old friend that knew you before, and then you got in the Word for a while, and you didn't know that person for a little while, and then you came back into their life, and they say, wow, you're different. This is a developmental process. It's a growth of these character qualities. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Christates. That, that's, Christates is, is, is definitely kindness. This word goodness bothers us. Agathosune. Throw sune on the end of a conceptual word like dikaios, righteous, and you get righteousness. You take that quality and it becomes a noun. Agathos means good. It's your typical Greek word for good. A lady named Agatha, like Agatha Christie. It's, like, it's a Greek word that means good, right? And, um, and there are a couple of words for good in uh, Koine Greek. This is, this is one of them. It's typically, if you have one, one concept of good of itself, intrinsically, that would be agathos, right? And um, the other one is, means attractive or beautiful, good in the sense of its form, it's pleasing. But this one means of its inherent qualities, typically there's an overlap. But the point is that this word goodness has a specific way it's used in the first century. And it doesn't just mean in a general sense, that, that's a good guy right there. It means that you're good to people. It's good in the sense of like charity, of charitableness, of of kindness, it's the same kind of word as kind. Good as in toward people. You're good to someone. That's the way this word is used in the first century. And so it's, it's a synonym for kindness that has to do with acts of kindness, of being a charitable person. I think of Boaz in the story of Ruth when I think of this word. Boaz is kind of what we call in literary literature a flat character. He's the man that redeems Ruth, the Moabitess, and becomes the great-great-grandfather of David, and therefore in the line of our Savior. And Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, is a beautiful story, and he's a magnificent a hero in the Bible, Boaz. You can read it, four, four simple chapter, little chapters of the book of Ruth. But he's a flat character because it's not primarily about him. It's really primarily about Naomi and the development of her character. That's what the book of Ruth is really about. But Boaz, everything he says and does is righteous. Everything. Every act he, he makes in the story, he's like a Samuel-type character. He gets it right. He's the hero. And the problem is Naomi and her attitude. The problem isn't Boaz and his missteps. Now, Boaz is a sinful person like all of us, but the way the story portrays him, it only highlights the, the salutary, gentlemanly nature of this Gibor Chayil, this man of, mighty man of renown. Boaz, what a great character. It's a very wonderful romantic story. We should, do, um, we should do Ruth every Valentine's Day. 
But Boaz is interesting the way uh, the writer of Ruth portrays him. The first words out of his mouth as he's introduced into the narrative, into the story, as you're watching the screenplay in your mind as you read it. The first thing out of his mouth is a blessing to his subordinates. He's got laborers that work for him. He's, in a, he's a businessman. He's got these workers. The first thing you see of him is he offers a blessing of the Lord to these men. And that's, that sets the tone for the whole story. And Ruth, as you see this character, Boaz, Boaz is a good man. He offers a blessing. He offers help to the needy. That's the idea of goodness. Faithfulness, pistis, could be translated faith or faithfulness. There was this, this, the stock noun for faith in the New Testament in Greek. And every time you see it, it has two possible senses, and they're equally possible depending on how the author uses it. And that's really important for us theologically because we want to say faith is simply believing, and it is. It's recognizing the faithfulness of another. That's built on the Old Testament design and understanding of faith. Faith that saves is not your action of, of, of faithfulness or goodness or any of the things. The faith that saves is actual faith. It's trusting in someone else. It's the work of the other. That's the way faith not works, okay, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But the other side of the coin is the faithfulness that you're trusting in. So it could be either translated faithful or faith. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we contend in context, is the faithfulness he builds in us. Now, wouldn't it be great if this characterized each one of us, if this was the way our local church was, that we were all characterized by faithfulness? Hey, can I tell you something that I really don't want to tell anyone else, but I need to talk to somebody? Danger, danger, danger. It's Christians. It's church people. Don't say anything else. Right? No, not here. Actually, this church is, is I'm, I salute you. This church family is, is fairly good about not gossiping. I'm fairly good about it. But it's always a risk. It's always a danger. Wouldn't it be magnificent? If you say, I won't tell anybody, and then you don't. <laughs> so that you could actually talk to somebody. I got, I'm struggling with somebody to talk to somebody. Wouldn't it be fantastic? Now, I've seen an, an effort to say, well, we have the Holy Spirit. We won't talk to one another about our troubles. We'll take it to God. Well, the problem with that mentality is that it's uh, ignorant of Scripture. You've got to go to the Bible. You bear one another's burdens in Galatians chapter 6 and so fulfill the law of Christ. You go back to Ecclesiastes and three chords are stronger than one. And there's wisdom in the surrounding yourself with counselors, the abundance of counselors. And yeah, you, you, you should. I, I would find somebody wise to check off with them on a lot of the important decisions in life. I think it's really valuable to do that. One of the designs, you know, parents don't just put on diapers on their kids and they don't just feed them and they don't just drive them to, to, to sports practice or whatever. And they don't just uh, show up and cry at their graduation. They don't just, uh, you know, give them presents at Christmas. And when they visit parents are always a repository of wisdom, as long as we have them, they should be there. We're supposed to be. If you're a parent, take it where it lands. If you have parents look for that in them, unless you can't. And I understand faithfulness is this quality where we become more and more like our savior and we're trustworthy. We're trustworthy. So much of, of our time we've spent about talking about faith or trusting in the faithfulness of another, maybe we've neglected that there's supposed to be growing in us a trustworthiness. Your money, for example. Heaven forbid that you should drop a 20 in the parking lot accidentally as you're getting your car keys out. It should be safe here. We should be spirit-filled, trustworthy people that are faithful, and that's not ours. That gets turned in. Somebody, somebody dropped their money. Well, that's not going to happen. I mean, that's cash. <laughs> but see what I mean? All kinds of illustrations. You can think, what kind of faithfulness do you exhibit? What kind of person are you? And is God working in this in you? And you could say, well, I, 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 I don't know. Well, how about some aspiration? How about I'd like to be this way? That's part of what the scriptures do here is they give you a, a, a model. They say where we're headed. I'm faithful. Not just for the Marines. And why, by the way, Semper Fidelis doesn't mean always believing. 
It means always faithful. You can always call us. We'll, we'll get on a boat and go, go take down the Tripolitan pirates or whoever. Now we get to the, um, the twins at the end, Prautes and Ekratia. Gentleness is the translation of how we usually do Prautes. Gentleness is gentle in the sense not of uh, not given to anger. That's in macrothemia. That's long-suffering. Gentleness doesn't mean, um, you know, careful in speech, but that, that's probably self-control. Gentleness here means humble of mind. That's what this word gentle is. It's, it's an old use of the word gentle. It's noblesse oblige or whatever. It's that I don't deserve the riches that I have. It's God's grace. And I'm humble before God, recognizing that that's, that's where the value is in his provision and his grace. So this sense of self, this legitimate sense of self is a gift that God works in us. It's a fruit of the spirit. And we should desperately seek it. I've shared with you many times the great insight C.S. Lewis has about humility in the screw tape letters. Screw tape is teaching Wormwood how to, how to bedevil the subject that he's, he's influencing. And he takes him on uh, this, this little lecture about when you start to see a thought of humility, when you start to see him truly humbling himself, let him see it. Remind him how humble he's being. See, we aspire to humility, but we never claim it, right? Because once we do, now we're proud of how humble we are. Don't touch it. Just aspire to it. Don't claim it. Be it, but don't claim it. See what I mean? I want to be humble. And self-control. Self-control helps me interpret a lot of things, I think, about the work of the Spirit. The stuff that's out there that people blame on the Holy Spirit that is a lack of self-control really fly in the face of this. Oh, I can't help it. It's the Spirit. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what the the text says. The text says the Spirit is building in you the capacity to help it. You can. Yes, we can. Against these things, these qualities, there is no law. There is no legislation against them. These are the things that we are, and the law doesn't say, oh, you're out of bounds. The law says you're fulfilling the character of Christ, and it's growing in you. Some observations that these qualities the Spirit brings forth, the picture seems passive. This is the fruit of the Spirit. You're kind of like the tree that's growing the fruit, but the Holy Spirit's bringing the growth. It's right out of uh, John 15, and abide in me, Jesus says, and you'll bear fruit. This, you know, the staying connected to the plant means the branches can derive the nourishment and grow because genetically that's what a branch does. If it gets the right kind of sunshine, the right water, the right nourishment from the soil, it's going to grow fruit. That's what it does. And so this work of the Spirit in us is just, it's natural to our new nature in the Spirit. It seems passive here. I say seems because of where we're headed. The Holy Spirit makes these qualities possible. It has to be the work of the Spirit in you. It's not just that if I just persist in this life and read my Bible, then this will inevitably happen, that it's just like some sort of inevitable growth process, but it is the inevitable consequence of you walking by the Spirit according to the Word. It will. God will do this in you. And so that should give us great, great joy. I can be like this. I can become more and more this way. This is where I'm headed. Hey, that is fantastic. But, but watch it on being passive, as we'll see in Second Peter. In this context, we bear this fruit when walking by the Spirit, as I've said, and the fruit grows. That's important. Fruit grows. It doesn't just in the morning, blunt, fully grown fruit. That, the picture of growth of fruit is it, it develops over time. That's, that's helpful, too. It's not just me. All of us, we're all a work in progress. That's great. Right? And, and we should be fruitful. It's a developmental process. The fruit is directly in contrast to the deeds of the flesh in context. One seems to be the character that you're supposed to be, and the actions that come from it will be from that character. The other are the actions the flesh motivates. You see the difference? The flesh is just wicked and selfish. The Spirit is producing this selfless love in you. And so the actions that issue forth come from that 
from that character. And last, the responsibility factor for the believer is walk by the Spirit. He says in the context, walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. You won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. These are at odds with one another. These are the deeds of the flesh, but the deeds of the Spirit are, or the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit is. That's what he'll produce in you. Now, that's the theology of the character of Christ formed in you and your Christian spiritual life. And it is available to you, and it's supposed to be growing in you. It isn't growing in everyone, but it's supposed to be as you're walking by the Spirit. That's the nature of the Christian spiritual life. It's supernatural, it's developmental, and it will impact your character. Now, one of my favorite things to do in all of this life is theology. And theology is when we build a category from understanding something in its context, and we compare it with something else that's talking about the same thing, some other passage, and you bring these things together in a process we call correlation. I'm teaching you intentionally. You Sunday morning, second hour people need to know this because you need to do this. You take what God said in this passage, and when he talked about it somewhere else, you see what he says and see how they compare, and it's magnificent what comes out of this doctrine that really focuses on the love that Christ has commanded us. Correlation number one. These qualities of love, joy, peace, and the following things are things that love, agape, does in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. Literally, in Greek, it says love behaves patiently. It's patient as a verb. Love acts kindly. So you have long-suffering and kindness are the attributes of love, the way love behaves. It's not jealous, it's not brag, it's not arrogant. That is a corollary to humility. Love is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Maybe this is the first time you noticed, but most of the description of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is negative. It's what it isn't. This is what theologians have called the via negativity, the things that aren't true about God. God is not finite, so he's infinite, right? That, that's the way we've described the character of God. Um, he's immutable. He doesn't change. He's non-changing, so he's immutable. That's some of the way we've described God. So this is the, the description of love. It, it has these qualities, and it, and it doesn't have these other qualities. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Why is rejoice in bold? For my correlation with um, Galatians 5. Because love, joy, peace, patience. I don't have peace, but I've got love, I've got joy, I've got patience, and I've got humility already. I should have highlighted arrogant because it's the opposite of the humility. What else does love do? It bears all things, it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Endure, parallel to long-suffering. What's the correlation I'm making? That the first item in the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, is then characterized by all the things that are in that list. It's all love. It's all a way of understanding what it is to love as Christ has commanded us. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 shows us. The second correlation with this picture of love is that it grows. Where in the Bible, see, this is the kind of stuff you want to do once you understand a passage, ask, it, ask the Bible theological questions. Where in the Bible does it say that love grows? 1 Thess 3. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Again, you're reading through your Bible. That's a different task than studying it and, and seeking to understand categorically which is really the underlying current of everything we're doing, is understanding God and all that he said. First Thess 3.12, that God, it's God does it, he will cause you, this is Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians, to increase and abound in love. In other words, love isn't a static thing. Well, I just love this much and that's all there is. Well, that may be true today. You've got a button, push it, love. And it only does so much. But as you grow, that button ought to do a lot more. It expands. Love is a growing thing, just as we also do for you, he says, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Okay, there's eschatological impact. There's an outcome in God's assessment and evaluation if I love as I'm supposed to, and it's a growing process. That's exactly what we would expect if love is the fruit of the Spirit. It would grow. So love is part of how spiritual growth works. This is something I can really get, my, get my, uh, my mind around. Are you growing spiritually? 
Do you value the concept of spiritual growth? Do you have a spiritual life? Because life implies growth. Are you walking with God? Are you growing in your relationship with him? Well, one measure for you to assess honestly before yourself and God, between God and, 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 and the, that honest moment of the quietness of your soul with him, am I loving as I'm commanded? Is it more natural to me to snap back to I don't react to what they say or entrust myself to God who judges righteously as Jesus did, and I seek what God wants in their behalf. And it starts with, we taught the kids today, with prayer. Is that something that's more and more apparent to you? Is it more and more part of your conscience? Where when you don't do it, it bothers you, may not why, may, may not know why in that moment. I don't know why, what's bothering you, what's that last interaction, was something wrong with that. I mean, she shouldn't have said that, and then I said what I said. I was right, I was right in everything. What's bothering me? Something's wrong about that. It may be that your conscience is more and more calibrated by the command to love. And so I said something that was true, and it might have been the right thing to do, but it didn't come out of this motivation. What does God want for this person? And that, that kind of process is happening in us. Love grows. Correlation one was that the things that love does are the fruit of the Spirit. Love rejoices. And, and so there, it's all ways of understanding this telescoping power of the love of Christ working in our hearts. And then it, it's a, something that is growing. And the third is that the commandment, is love, as we told the children in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give you, that same word, agape, agapao, it's the verb form, that you would love one another. You would find all of these verses if you did a concordant search on that verb agapao, or with its noun cognate, agape. Same word for love in all of these. That you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus had to say that twice, I guess. No, he said it three times. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. He hit you three times in John's writing, summarizing what Jesus said in the upper room discourse, which we all know is John chapters 13 through 17. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. When, listen, I hope you're hearing me, and some of you might have heard this 50 times, and here's 51, and you're going to finally understand it. We don't mean that you're having an uncontrollable emotional compulsion to have affection towards someone because they're so attractive. That's not what we mean by love one another as Christ has loved us. Okay? We're saying the love we're talking about is John 3.16 love. It's what does God want for that person? How can I act on it? Don't look at me. Look at them. Look at what God wants for them. And how can I be a part of what God wants for that person? And for the unbeliever, it's, beloved, it's the Great Commission. For the unbeliever, what God wants is that no one should perish. He wants them to have life. That's, that's the gospel. That's, that's evangelism. For the believer, it's that they grow in the word. They be, be closer and closer with God. They have the riches of God's grace in their walk with God. And that is discipleship. That's giving them the word. The Great Commission is how you carry out this instruction. There's no contradiction. They, they, we're summarizing the entire New Testament here. Love one another as I've loved you. It's so helpful to have these summaries. Where did I learn to summarize? Who taught me how to summarize like that? Jesus, what's the great commandment? Okay? Love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 6.5. And the others like it. Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I learned from Jesus we need to be able to summarize these things. We could also do a correlation. The, the goal of our instruction, 1 Timothy, 5, or 1 Timothy 1, is love from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. The whole thing, the whole measure. It may be that the judgment seat of Christ, he says, okay, let's get out. How'd you love? I, I gave you the commandment. I gave you the Holy Spirit. What did we miss here? That may be, that, that could be how he does it, how he summarizes our, our work at the judgment seat. I don't, the Bible doesn't say, and I won't speculate. Correlation number four is the shocker to some of you that this described as passive in Galatians 5, that it's the fruit that the Spirit bears in you. It's active in your volition. You're supposed to choose it. You're supposed to supply it in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 puts the onus on us not only to walk by the Spirit, but to choose what He wants us to choose. Now, for this very reason also, I'm going to turn there as we close, 2 Peter 5. Uh, one, sorry, Second Peter 1. How would we turn to Second Peter? I'm glad you asked. If you were in Galatians, you would just, uh, you would scroll um, right. You would go through Paul's corpus. You get maybe to Hebrews, which is pretty long, and keep going, and then there'd be James, and then 1st, 2nd Peter. We're in 2nd Peter. 
In verse 2, just real quick to get a running start, Peter offers a blessing. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Where does that grace come from? Where is God's blessing that he wants you to have? It's in knowing him. You have a Bible for a reason, right? To know him. That's revelation. Seeing, which means because, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This theme of knowledge begins first or second Peter and it closes it, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the last words of Peter in the scriptures. It's, it's really important, but it's not knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's not scholarship. It's knowing God. It's personal. It's interpersonal. For by these, his what, by these what? His uh, power and the knowledge, the true knowledge of him. For by these he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. In what sense are you a partaker of the divine nature? Well, it's the same thing John talks about in 1 John 1. You're walking in the light as he, God, is in the light. It's fellowship with God. It's partaking of his righteousness, not only by position, but by your experience. I'm walking with him according to the nature of his holy moral character. It's not that you become divinized. It's that you can partake of his righteousness in your experience, and that's by trusting in his promises. And for this reason of your relationship with him, we're now in verse 5. That's the context. Applying all diligence, that means uh, first priority. That means that I'm making every effort. And in, uh, in applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And I put a verb in here um, uh, that is a present imper- an aorist imperative, supply. It's a fine epicorgeo. It means to, probably means to supply. It's a good enough term. It's, it's what you, would, you bring it to the table. Bring it. You need it. Hey, would you guys go bring me the forks and we'll set the table? Okay, supply the forks. You go get them, you bring them and put them at the table. That's the, the nature of this word, um, epicorgeo. And so the translation of supply in the New American Standard, I think, is fine. But it, what it doesn't, what you may not notice, it's a command. He tells you to do it. In your knowledge... The implication here, the grammatical implication is supply self-control. With your knowledge, you, you supply knowledge, so you've got to bring what you know from God, verses 3 and 4. In your knowledge, bring self-control. In your self-control, bring perseverance or supply perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, bring brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, bring agape. You're commanded to supply these. Now, in Galatians 5, I'll show you how the list compares. In Galatians 5, you bear the, the, the Spirit bears this in you. In 2 Peter 1, you bring it to the table and you serve it. So who's in charge here? Is it God's work in me or is it my choice? The answer is, yes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Choose to love, choose to rejoice, choose to enjoy peace. Choose the things that God calls you to because God is bearing it in you. Just side by side real quick, the character qualities in Galatians 5, 23 are here. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In 2 Peter 1, 5-7, diligence, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control. By the way, moral excellence. Anybody know the Greek word for that? You don't? It's not just a camp in Tennessee. It's a rete. This is the word. Uh, arete, moral excellence. This is a rete weekend. <laughs> Texas is here, and so we, we've arranged for snow and 16-degree weather. It's good. Um, diligence, moral excellence, that's arete. Knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, eusebia. We say godliness, and people kind of don't know that. That word eusebia translated godly. I don't like the word godly. I love God, and I want to be godly, but I don't like what this word does because we, in our culture, you understand pop culture is trying to go toward the new age and you become God. It's the satanic lie, you will be as God. But that's not what this word means, and, and I, don't, I don't want people to get confused. 
The word godly means eusebiah is you is good, and sabiah is for worship. It means good worship, God word, right? Under God, toward God. That's, that's what this word is implying. But it doesn't say the word God at all. There's no theos in it. So godliness or reverence would be a good translation, reverence. Brotherly love, that's Philadelphia. That's not just a city in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then agape. I lined them up in the order they're presented in the text. Now, I believe personally that Paul is making a list in Galatians 5 and that Peter's making a list in 2 Peter uh, 1. And they're inspired by the Holy Spirit to make their lists. But I don't think they're thinking of this whole fully orbed theology of, you know, that we could spend a year on each one of these qualities or something. He's making a list of the qualities of our, of our Savior. That you, in, in Galatians, the Spirit produces it in you as you walk by him. In First or Second Peter, you bring them because you have them. It, it fits together very closely. But look at how these line up. Love begins Paul's list and it ends Peter's list. Love begins Paul's list and it ends Peter's list. Long-suffering and endurance are the same thing. It's not the same word, but they're the same concept. Hupomone, long-suffering. Kindness, Christotes, and brotherly love, Philadelphia, that's the same idea. They're synonyms. Self-control, egratia, self-control, egratia, is the same thing. When you have the same two, two exact words, self-control and love, in both lists, you have to say we're talking about the same thing. That's theology. So the quality of love that I'm supposed to supply, this quality of, of self-control, I'm told elsewhere by Paul that the Holy Spirit brings this forth in me. Peter says, I'm responsible to supply it. So who's right? You, in answering that question and saying they're both right, they're talking about the same thing from different perspectives or in, in different aspects of it, you can see how this works. God is working in me both to want and to do what pleases him, but I have to choose to do it. God pl- supplies the power. He sets me up to make the choice, but I have to choose. And so the passive idea of Christendom, I'll do whatever God makes me do, that's not how it works. He tells you what he wants, then you've got a choice. As we teach and teach and teach, he tells you what he wants, and then you have a choice. I so appreciate your patience today with letting me do a little theology with you. Thinking through the character of our Savior and how it works in our lives. I pray that you'll come away with this complicated message, this inductive approach to biblical theology, and you'll say, I'm responsible for something that God alone can do in me. I'm responsible for something that God, that God alone can do in me. I hope also you can come out of this saying, I want that. I want to be kind. I want to be the person that God wants me to be. Finally, that your prayer life would reflect what God has said. Because Jesus teaches us, and everywhere we go in, in the scriptures on prayer, we pray in accordance with God's revealed will. This is what he wants for you. This is what he thinks of you and his desire for you. Our Father, we love you and praise you for this life, for the privilege we've had to think about your word and your son today. Father, we've seen a portrait in so many different aspects, so many different ways, the portrait of your son that's being formed in us. And we're so rich to know him on the terms you've supplied, to know him through what you presented, what you revealed in your word. Father, don't let us see the riches of your grace that are applied to us in our salvation what that tells us about our responsibilities. Don't let us look in the mirror of the word and then walk away and forget the riches that we have and the high calling that you've got on our lives. Let us embrace these things, walk forward diligently in humility to love you by loving what you love, to serve you on your terms and the power, the grace that you supply. Strengthen us for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.